Now, the shotgun start in golf is full of mathematics. Um, there's a lot, of, a lot of setup work that we have to do in order to make a tournament work. So, I'm going to demonstrate to you just exactly how we do a shotgun start here. Greetings and welcome to a Monday edition of the Shotgun Start. It is April 20th. Andy, how we doing? Brendan! I'm doing oh. good. How about you? I'm good. I don't know if my volume's up or that was just an extra loud... I just got greeting. done watching the, the first two hours of the Jordan doc. I'm pumped up. Watch, fantastic. Watching a documentary about the greatest uh, grace of all time. Sure. Absolutely. That's debatable. We're not going to get into that right now. I want to. I want to talk about this. There's a lot of good tweets. Besides, you know, LeBron being bigger, faster, stronger, better shooter, all that. You know, sure. Oh, Michael's playing against, you know, John Pat. You know, Craig Ela. Just a different era. But we're not going to get into this yet. We're not going to get into this right now. We're going to have like unbelievable. A month to this. Unbelievably, no, <laughs> the the LeBron truthers coming out. Not a truther. Not yeah, a truther. Yeah, Different era. Guy, guy had to go hop around team to team to oh, try and get his championships. He got, All right. got dared into taking outside side shots in a series and just got broken dared? by team. Oh. Broken by teams. He has a better shooting percentage than Michael. Avoidable. I don't want to. Completely, completely different NBA. Anyways, yeah. Completely it, different. Yeah. It's, Imagine it's Michael Jordan without hand checking much better now okay um imagine no, no, michael no. without hand checking i adore michael i grew up you know hating but loving michael kind of thing so i i obviously loving this nostalgia trip it's a cool documentary it'll be great um all right god i can't believe you just injected that, that that uh that you know lebron into this conversation i'm right not now. injecting him i think that's stupid how that has become the debate that was like the d discourse on twitter all day but just watch the documentary and enjoy michael like who cares let's not do that now you yeah. know so, yeah, let's not do um uh, we'll do walter payton versus jim brown someday too we can we can do that one um anyway i think jim brown was better oh i appreciate that <laughs> i appreciate that you watched him back in the day. That's oh, the yeah. thing. Everybody, everybody just says it, but like no one, like you know, they were just taking all our dads and grandpa's word for that. Um, all right, so let's get to it. We have a uh, great interview guest today, Mike Mike Clayton from Australia. Yeah. Uh, you know, known for a lot of things in and around the game. Incredible opinions, incredible insights. Mostly now, like an architecture, you know, aficionado. Well, uh, he's an architect. He well, plays. he is an actual yeah architect, but <laughs> he, like he also writes on Twitter. You know, he's. I think most of his opinions are about architecture at this point. But he was a European tour player in the height of some of these uh, profiles that we've done. You know, Woozy Eight, Lyle, eighty-two we got, to two thousand. We got Faldo coming, and uh, in, in you know, addition to be just a, a smart, 
you know, historian of the game and an interesting character. He has, he can speak to some of these players that we've been discussing. So we're not going to discuss, you know, any of the other areas of his expertise, like architecture and things like that. But he does tell a ton of good stories about some of the, that eighties European tour, nineties European tour that we uh, have been spotlighting. Yeah. Um, Before we get to Mike, anything you want to do on news? I don't know. Do you want to talk news? I mean, well, I think some is... people probably want to hear us talk Jordan LeBron. <laughs> news is pretty static these days, you know, it's, but I think we can, what we're going to talk about today, we can talk about for Wednesday too. But I think the big thing was uh, that the PGA tour could use a million uh, COVID-19 tests to finish its season. Guardian I just want to say, even, even, even Murray for the guardian, uh, you know, the 1 million number, is like the headliner it says they they hope to take delivery of up to 1 million so maximum of 1 million it would seem like uh just to try to understand you know i think that's been the big outstanding question of how this all works like you know commissioner monahan even you can release the schedule you can say you know we're going to play here and when um but the testing is kind of the biggest hurdle. And Monaghan said that even after they released the schedule. So it seems like they're going to get, or they're attempting, hoping to get a million tests for players, caddies, um, you know, and officials, you know, I guess they're already on mass order. According to Murray, they'll send to their homes with a further and immediate check required. If anyone has traveled to the tournament by air, I'm reading from his article. Now daily tests will be subsequently undertaken by each individual in tournament week anyone returning a positive test asked to self-quarantine for 14 days. Uh, there's, you know, other details like locker rooms and player dining is not really going to be a thing if this all goes according to plan. Any, uh, I don't know. I think we'll talk more about it Wednesday. Any immediate comments? I, I Yeah, I mean, obviously testing is the most important part. Obviously, yeah. I think like one thing, there could become an optics issue if, if states aren't getting tests and... There not could become. There will yeah. be. Yeah. Um, I think like, you know, whatever whatever you think this is right, wrong, and different, um, just the fact of the matter, it's gonna be a, a PR mountain to climb if this go you know, if this goes according to plan. It does seem like the government is aiding in their you know, attempt to get tests and wants sports back. And I think I understand like the ideas behind that. Um, but th- it will be a PR battle for sure. It will not be, you know, this happened to the NBA when the NBA players were kind of teams were kind of getting tested when it wasn't really available to the rest of the public. Um, and if that is the case in June, again, we're not saying, you know, June, maybe there is more testing and more. Hopefully, hopefully there's testing for everybody. in June. Yeah. Yeah. But if there's not in the, the tour is kind of just sitting on a million tests, it will be a uh, PR PR mountain to that will be hard to overcome, but that's a hypothetical. Maybe, maybe we'll have a new normal by then. Yeah. But if you know, they got to test all the time. If they're going to, if they're going to have five to or six to 700 people on site every week and traveling every single week. Yeah. That's, that's so one of my things was like, why wouldn't, why wouldn't you do this where you did the bubble? Like I've listened to a lot of like stuff about, the bubble theory, you know, the, the major league baseball theory. Yeah. Yeah. And I get, they want to appease sponsors have of like, why not try and just do four events 
four weeks in the same spot. Or even like a, maybe it's four different courses in like a, in a limited town. radius yeah. of Arizona or wherever it is, Texas, Florida, things like that. Yeah. I, I don't get like, it, it has to be the sponsors, but I just don't understand why are the, why are you traveling week to week? Why not just put everybody into a bubble essentially? Especially when we're talking about, uh, you know, I'm thinking about this. No fans. Yeah, but they're going to pretty disparate places. I mean, we're talking Connecticut, Detroit, Harbortown, and Dallas, Fort Worth. It's flying everywhere. uh, So that's that's kind of a wide cross section of the country. But yeah, I, I don't know. That doesn't seem. It just doesn't seem feasible, right? It just. It just seems. I'm like talking about the unnecess- bubble. That seems hard, is what I'm saying. The bubble? You, yeah. Why? I just don't the, think there's. An they want to play. That. They want to play because they're losing millions of dollars every yeah. single time of events canceled. You yeah. know, I get yeah. that. The, that's why they want to play and why they're in such a rush to play. They yeah. go, they want to appease sponsors. But if the easiest way to do it would be like, there's a reason that that. Major League Baseball has legs because that bubble theory works. Does it have legs? I think it's got legs. Okay. I mean, they're talking about the same thing with the NBA, like where they go to Las Vegas or LA and they, you know, essentially take over a city. I would say the NBA seems to be much more uncertain yeah. about what's going to happen than the tour releasing a schedule. I mean, Adam Silver is saying like, I just, we have no real update for you. We have no real definitive anything to say. And it, go ahead. I don't it's, it's a, it's, it's interesting how different the two commissioners are speaking. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm hopeful. I'm optimistic. I don't know if I'm optimistic. I'm hopeful that, uh, this somehow works with all the tests. I just like it's um, it will be a tough PR challenge if they have a million tests so that golf tournaments can be played. I'm not to arguing for one way. I'm just telling you the reality of how it will be. Yes, it, it, it will be like it'll a be show. Yeah, it'll be, it'll be that golf. It's what happens with golf all the time. Did you see that um, New York? Public courses are closed, but private courses are allowed. You see yeah, that thing? I, yeah. It's crazy. I think that's more of a, you know, employee thing. You know, if you're a privately owned course and not just private club, but privately yeah. owned, I think there's a difference and they just didn't want, I don't know. Oh, that makes or, sense, actually. Um. So, yeah, it's all, everybody's trying to like figure it out. You know, <laughs> I don't think there's any kind of silver black and white or you know black and white definition on how to be right now all right should we do a uh ad read before we get to mike we should our uh good friends at rocket are back they are with us through this odd and you know quarantined homebound time um just to provide an update i know you know they had a kind of massive run of orders and business in the you know mid-march when this became the new reality um but they they have updated us on where they're at um they think they're pretty much almost all through the whole like backlog of that first rush when amazon was kind of prioritizing quote essential whatever they deemed essential um 
And so they said they're just about through that. They're sold out of hitting nets, but they're adding limiting quantities in inventory over the next two weeks with they're expecting a much larger shipment for hitting nets also in the next two weeks should have more coming available. Um, and then pretty much everything else is in stock, like chipping targets, which is your favorite, turf mats, putting greens, and then all the other sports like rebounders for basketball, soccer goals, baseball, lax, all that stuff is, is in stock. So the nets seems like they'll be taking on uh, additional inventory. The next your kid, weeks. your kid launch any balls over, over the fence. Their kids, yes. they were doing yes. it all weekend. A bunch. <laughs> it's just unbelievable. I, 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 it makes me so mad, Andy. I don't know what to, they don't listen. They just take full swings and these things go sailing over. The, and now what's worse. They is probably know it bothers you. So, yeah, they do. They know what bothers me. They just torture me. <laughs> Our neighbors ripped up their entire lawn and are planting grass, like regraded it and planted grass. So they're hitting balls out into the middle of this, you know, ground that does a ground under repair. That's not supposed to be walked on or traipsed over. So I can't like, I can't like hop the fence and be walking on their grassy. They look out the window there's this big fat idiot walking through the backyard on the grass they're trying to plant. So it's become doubly challenging. That happened this last week. Uh, so, but there's still just, there's just this, you look over there, I can't go get them now. There's this litter of uh, balls. But yeah, we, we did a lot of chipping net action this past week. Um, anyways, our promo code is what? SGS15? SGS15. 15% off uh, uh, orders of $100 or more. Um, they've added like 10 part-time employees to help with kind of the surge of kind of customer service demand and all the efforts of fulfilling everybody's order. So, I mean, they've got their small business, got a, a massive amount of order and they're busting their ass to get it done. So anything else on rocket? That's it. I'm, I'm going to set up my net tomorrow again. What's the URL? Uh, rucket.com r-u-k-k-e-t okay. just want to make sure i never i never have it fully accurate so rucket.com you also uh, hard to remember rucket.com uh sgs15 is your promo code and i you know what i have to recommend it it is an easy and good backyard activity for us right now so except when your kid's disobedient and hit, slam them over the fence all right should we get to uh mike yeah so Michael Clayton, he's uh, active on Twitter and uh, Instagram, and he's a uh, former European tour, Australian tour player, uh, golf course architect, and writer. He writes too. He's a, he's a Renaissance man. <laughs> he is. Uh, some amazing stories. He's coming. on podcasts a lot too. A ton of podcasts. Um, some great stories. We, we kind of directed the conversation at the, at the big five, so to speak, or the famous five. Uh, uh, there's a documentary, I think, even on Golf Channel going on that this week. But uh, but he went all over the place, talking about guys getting super banged up on in Thailand, Japan. You know, there's a few architecture thoughts, you know, the modern dilemmas facing the European tour, but uh, some great stories on Seve, Lyle, woozy and then we're gonna do faldo this week as well so we thought it was a good time to have mike and we appreciate his time what's his handle do we know was uh, it mike 
It's Galt. At, uh, it's at uh, the on Instagram. It's Mike underscore Clayton underscore Golf, and uh, I think he changed it on on Instagram. It used to be uh, it used to be guy who fell on his ball. I think that's right. Mike Clayton Golf on Twitter as well. Uh, a must follow. So um, yeah, and then I'm I'm sorry I forgot to turn my mic on, so my audio is not perfect. But everybody else's audio is great. I, it, I can't believe I, that happened. Are you, are you, right. you know, my Zoom had it set. I just forgot to check the settings. I'm sorry. It's, I apologize. But All right. We'll, we'll figure out the mic issue one day. Someday. Not anytime <laughs> soon. But if you come to us for high-quality audio and mics that are turned on 100% of the time, then you're at the wrong place. All right, mean, we're, we're good like 85% of the time. That's a pretty good average. All right, here's Mike. This is a great one. I mean, we think you'll enjoy it. Yeah, I remember playing with Woozy in um, the end of 1981 in Australia, and he ripped it. He like shot. He missed the cut by a bunch, but he, you could see how good he was. That was in October in 81, and he started to play well. He went and played a good tour. He played well at Royal Melbourne a couple of weeks later, then he went to Africa. Remember he told that story about watching Gordon Brown Sr. hack it on the range? Yes. Yeah. And he, 82 was his breakout year. But he'd struggled for years, you know. But it was amazing given how poorly he played and how good he was. He talks about that, that brand anecdote, about like how these guys would be hitting the boundary fence on both sides of the range but shoot four or five better than I would while I was, you know, breaking clubs over my knee. And I kind of, that, that seemed to be his epiphany of, of sorts at the Safari yeah, Tour, I think. I remember playing, yeah, we played at Royal Adelaide and he just ripped it and he missed it. He didn't go close to making the cut. I was like, what's going on here? I couldn't believe it. <laughs> <laughs> so it, that was before Woozy was on, on the European tour. And, and at that time, Seve was just getting started there. What, what was, I guess, what was like the, the European tour like before those guys got there? And then what was it like during and after? Before Seve got there? Well, Seve got there in 75. So before him, there'd been this crazed group of Australians, Shearer, Bob Shearer, Ian Stanley, Jack Newton, Stuart Ginn, Sarbigans, Simon Hobday and Tertius Classens, who were completely crazy. Who went and shot 68 and got drunk every night and just turned the tour on its head, really. I mean, Shearer was second on the main list in 75, so he was one of the best players there. But prior to that, it was, I mean, Jackham was obviously a superstar, but he'd gone to America. And Peter Oosthuis was the best player probably. But it was stayed kind of terrific players like Neil Coles, who was a beautiful player, but Bernard Hunt and guys like that who were, you know, very English and quiet and reserved. And of that sort of the, the generation before, he'd been, he'd been the mainstays of the 60s. So Morris Pembridge and Tommy Horton, guys like that who were, Good players, but you know, not charismatic at all. And then the Australians turned up. I mean, Jack obviously was, you know, lost the Open to Watson in a playoff in 75. Shearer was second on the main list. Simon Hobday was crazy. So these guys kind of came out and turned the state image of the tour on its head a bit. And then Seve turned up in 75. And he was a, you know, people knew about him in 975. I mean, his brother, Manuel, who was a good player, told me once that 
No one ever saw Seve play his best golf. Seve played his best golf when he was 15 and 16. So he was incredible. You couldn't believe how good he was. So he came on the tour in 75. And then most people's first recollection of him was at Birkdale in 76. But he was, I mean, already the players on the tour knew how good he was. So um, I think Faldo was out that year as well, 76. Ken Brown was starting out. Sandy got out there in 77 or 78. Langer was there early on. He was there in 76 with the yips. <laughs> um, <laughs> I remember playing the first tour I ever played in Europe. I was an amateur. I played the Dutch Open. And Mike Ferguson was an Australian. Fergie, Fergie's sister married, was married to Payne Stewart, Tracy. And he saw I was playing ahead of the group ahead of Langer. And he said, watch this guy play. He said, just watch him from, from, from behind. He said, he'll hit it to 15 feet all day and shoot 75, <laughs> which he duly did. But he finished up, I think he finished eighth in that tournament, the 1980 Dutch Open. Seve beat Sandy in a, in, a, in a last day duel. But that was kind of almost Langer's breakout tournament as well. He finished off that year really well, but he was a frightfully bad putter, like horrendous how bad he was. He was, uh, he, he was really slow too, right? Every, uh, he, all these articles. Well, he was German and he was, you know, he was just meticulous. <laughs> he was the first great German player and he just did things the German way really, which happened to include playing really slowly. <laughs> you know, but there's that famous story about, I don't know if it's true, but he was playing with Monty somewhere in the Ryder Cup or a four, some force, whatever it was, and he asked him whether he'd taken the yardage from the front of the sprinkler or the back of the sprinkler. And surely that can't be true, but I mean, he was um, he was meticulous and slow and very German, but an, an amazing iron player. And then who was and, and then Woozy, who was a bit later. It took Woozy a while longer to get better, but not because he learned how to hit the ball, but because he learned how to play. I mean, Woozy could always hit the ball; he just learned how to play. So you know that completely transformed the tour. I mean, you would go to wherever you went in Europe, because it was before they joined the American tour and it was before the US tour had really spread into, what well, was before, it was when the Europeans had nowhere to play in January and February and November and December. So they would come down to Australia and play. So we saw them a lot down here as well. But, um, you know, Seve, you would watch Seve play Thomas and it'd be, he had the huge crowd and he would have women from, 14 to 70, just following him, just adoring him. It was incredible. So he was incredibly charismatic. He played amazing golf. And he, he kind of dragged us. As good as those other guys were, it took for Seve to go to America and win to show that what, what was possible. And you know, that group of players dominated the Masters in the 80s, really. Yeah, it's crazy that they all won the Masters. I, I'm curious, with... The best Europeans, you know, this is something I didn't realize until we started doing this research was how only one European got into like the Masters every year for the longest time until they expanded it in the late 80s. Well, 1991, Mike Harwood, Australian, finished second in the British Open to Finchie and didn't get in the Masters. I mean, can you imagine losing the final at Wimbledon and not playing in the US Open, not even being in the US Open tennis? <laughs> It was ridiculous. So it took, you know, so that was 1991. 
But there were a lot of guys, you know, guys like Sam Torrance and Howard Clark, uh, Mark James, who were really good players in Europe. Never got a chance to. Well, they did it later in later in their careers, but you know, it was un, unthinkable that those guys were getting invited to play at Augusta in the in the seventies. And it, I mean, in that in that late eighties, you could make an argument that the European Tour had more top talent than the PGA Tour. Well, you could in the late eighties. Yeah, it was easy to make the argument that Seve Faldo, Woody Langer, and Lyle were the best. Certainly, five of the top ten players in the world. I mean, Sandy lost it pretty quickly at the end of the eighties, but was he and Seve too a little bit? But I mean, they, they were clearly five of the best ten. And you had Greg, I guess, Nick Price, Tom Kite, Curtis Strange. Well, I mean, that was that's nine. So you know, that, they were the top players in the world at that time. Payne Stewart probably was the other one. You have this. Um, there's this great coincidence that all five of them were born really like within like an 11 month stretch. They were all the yeah. exact same age. There was no sort of staggered. I mean, granted, they came on at different times. Maybe turned pro. They were rookie of the year. I think Lyle was 78. Faldo was rookie of the year before that. The on the European tour. Um, but but coming up, you were an accomplished amateur in, in Australia. Was there? Was it like? Was it this collection of five when they were coming up before they had really broken out on the European tour? Did we know this was going to be a famous five or the big five or whatever they came to be known as in their amateur days? Was was there an understanding that they were going to be different and really propel the Euro tour? Well, not Sevi because Sevi didn't play in the amateur golf. I think yeah. the biggest thing he won was the Pedrinha Caddy Championship. Right, but everyone knew about Feldo. I mean, Feldo was a gun amateur. I think he won the English amateur in '75. So he was a star. He was all over the magazines, and because I was the same age, nine fifty-seven as well. So I grew up. You know, I, I knew about those guys. No, no one knew much about Langer. Like Langer played an exhibition with Jack when he was an amateur, or, or an assistant pro in Germany with, with Nicholas. Right. Um, Ken Brown was kind of a pretty well-known amateur. Sandy was a gun because Sandy's dad was a pro. So you know, he played in Walker Cups, and everyone knew about you know that that, that prodigious talent. Wuzzy was, I mean, no one thought Wuzzy was any good because he never did anything until 1982. Yeah. Um, and who was the other one? Well, and, and that was it. So yeah. they all came from at different speeds at different backgrounds. But, I mean, Seve had no publicity because he was Spanish. Faldo had, had more because he was just English and under English golf magazines. Right. So, but it, t- it took Seve no time to establish himself as a star. But Wuzzy was the only one that, took more than six months to, for everyone to realize this guy's a gun. Yeah. So Sandy was a star straight off. Faldo yeah. was, Seve was, Langer pretty much was. I mean, obviously, you know, when you can't two-putt from 10 feet, it doesn't help. <laughs> you know, it takes a little longer. But, um, you know, they were incredible talents. That, 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 and everyone recognized it very early on. And getting back to Andy's, you know, kind of earlier point, did that, how did that change the tour? The the complexion of the, both both on the course and off the court. I mean, did that like you said, there was this kind of the staid sort of British approach, uh, English approach prior to that, uh, and then you had some of the Aussies that came and mixed it up. Did, yeah. did that change the complexion of the tour in terms of quality of play, and then certainly all the off the course kind of culture? Well, they raised the quality of the play because they were better than anyone else. Yep. And of course, the other two that we we're forgetting is. Uh, uh, Nick Price and Norman. Yeah, I mean, Greg was a real. It was obviously a part of that. For, you know, Greg played that tour for six years, so he was a huge part of 
that group of players who changed the tour. So they gave the writers something more interesting than Neil Coles to write about. I mean, <laughs> anyone could write about – Neil Coles was a tremendous player, but it wasn't exactly great copy. Yeah. But, I mean, it was easy to write about Seve. I mean, he was the most interesting guy to watch play golf ever. And Greg was kind of who Greg was. He was charismatic and larger than life and flashy and played great golf. So gave the writers something to write about. You know, it was a, it was a it was just a new wave of golf. So they they raised the standard of the play um, because they were so good. But but the most important thing was they they gave Ken Schofield something to sell to sponsors. Right. You know, Schofield's in the World Golf Hall of Fame, which is. Yep. kind of amazing in its own way, but, you, you know, it, it, it mm-hmm. gave him something to sell. Right. And, um, right. you know, so, so the prize money, I mean, we thought we were playing for pretty good money in the mid-'80s. I mean, you look back now, it was kind of a joke. We were playing for £150,000 a week, but it was, um, you know, it was certainly a lot better than it was when Bob Shearer got there in 1972 and Jack Newton. So it gave this. It gave the tour something to sell. It gave the writers something to write about. It gave galleries something to watch. It gave sponsors a reason to invest. I, I imagine so, the OWGR was a big deal too when that came out, and all of a sudden, all international players are one through five, yeah. essentially for five years. Yeah, and, and, and winning the Masters was a huge. I mean, well, the, the, winning the Masters was big, but. Winning the Ryder Cup was another huge thing. That that '83 Ryder Cup where they lost. You know, Seve famously walked into the locker room. They were all despondent, and he said, "Walked in and said, this is a win for us. This is massive. We'll kill them next time.'" And they did. They went to the belfry and wiped the floor with them. Really. So you know, the Ryder Cup was a massive thing in giving that to a um, real um, legitimacy. Really, you know, it showed that they were that and winning the Masters showed that there were great players on the European tour who, who could be compared to the best players in America. Of course, before that, American players were gods. I mean, all over the world, every kid that grew up outside of America looked at Nicholas and Weisskopf and Miller and Trevino and Floyd and just thought, you know, there's no way anyone can be as good as those guys. So Seve was the first one to kind of put the stake in the ground and say, I can beat all you blokes. Which is why he had this antagonistic relationship with America, because he was over there fighting the fight for every non-American kid who'd grown up thinking, you know, there's no way we're as good as those guys in America. So it really changed the face of the game, really. You yeah, know, much and- like Sayri Pacti you know, in, in the women's game. Sure. When sure. you know, when she went to America and showed that the Koreans could be dominant players over there, or not dominant, but could compete over there. Do you think the the opening up of the the, I mean, it's part of it feels like there was such a barrier for those European stars. Maybe the seventies that that didn't get the recognition because, you know, it, they weren't a part of those American major championships. For for us, someone in our generations, it's inconceivable that wherever you wherever your talent wherever you come from, you're going to if you're talented and you're in the world rankings, you are invited to the U.S. PGA, the U.S. Open, the Masters. It's inconceivable to think that these talents, there was that barrier then. Do you think, you know, how, how did the European tour players approach that? And then it finally fell, started to fall in the 80s with their quick work at, at Augusta National. Yeah, but it was a long time after that that the top 50, I think this is right, a yeah. long time after that that the top 50 were exempt into the majors. Right. So there were lots of guys in the top 50 in the world who never played in the majors. 
Like Roger yeah, Davis was PGA. Roger Davis was ten in the world, and wasn't an automatic pick into all those majors. I don't think at that time in the eighties. So, so the big deal was making making the top fifty exempt. So that gave that opened the door for a lot of European players to, where it had previously been closed. So, so that was a big deal. Was that a source of frustration? I mean, in the early eighties, mid eighties, that carried on quite a bit i mean it had to be kind of frustrating i would think if you were on the european tour given the talent and level of play that yeah probably i'm not sure you didn't hear guys bitch about it too much it was just yeah. it was it was just what it was i mean people are, the guys kind of accepted that was what it was and they were hard to get into and we had good tournaments opposite the majors over there so the guys just stayed and played in europe I, I, and, I, and, and, and the rest of the tour in fairness, we're in awe of those five or six guys who were superstars as well. Yeah. You know, I think it was, I've, no, I've never thought about it, but it was probably fair to say that, you know, lots of guys in the tour thought, well, those majors are the preserve of those guys because they're the superstars. You know, there was still a massive inferiority complex on the tour, on the yeah. European tour, amongst the majority of players there because the Americans were the stars. It's it, so. A question I had was with the European PGA, uh, the Wentworth tournament. Yeah. Should that, given that, like, you know, you've got all these great players and they aren't even, they're averaging like two majors a year. Um, yeah. Should that, when we're looking back at this era of players, should we be counting European PGAs as majors? Almost? Well, no, because the top end of the field was really strong. The bottom end was... And blokes like me, you know, it wasn't that great, but um, it was a great tournament. I mean, I mean, the whole major thing's a different question. If you were starting out now, you wouldn't have three majors in America. Yeah. yeah. You, the, the tennis tour has got that much better arranged than golf has. Right. But given that it is what it is, that it was just a, it, 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 I mean, it wasn't, the fifth major probably, but it was certainly one of the most significant tournaments in the world. And it was because that was the one European event that all those guys played. You know, I don't think, maybe this is wrong, but it'd be hard to go through and find another European tour event when they were in their heyday that they all played because no tournament could afford them all, really. Wow. That's a- and they, all, they had different schedules. So Seve would be in America for part of the year and, Faldo and but they all came and played the PGA. So that was when I first went there. You know, I played that first played that tournament nine eighty four. Never really thought it was that big a deal. It was, but it, it, the tour did a great job in marketing it and, and making it really the biggest event on that tour by a long way. And and, and a big part of that was that those guys all played. Why? Why do you think they all succeeded at Augusta National and succeeded pretty quickly? Is there is that just pure coincidence? Is it something about their style? Something about that course that match? A good question because it didn't. I mean, it didn't really suit Langer's game. Langer was a you know an arrow straight driver, right? And Augusta's wide off. It suited. It suited. That course was built for Seve. It's the same as Royal Melbourne. The same golf course. You got. I mean, Mackenzie built them both within three or four years of each other. Lots of space to play off the tee. It's incredibly difficult around the greens. If you hit it out on the wrong side of the fairway, you've got to hit a great shot to get it back in play. I mean, Seve's shot into the 17th at 
the road hole in the 84 Open was a classic example of being completely out of play but being capable of playing the great shot to get it back on the green. So he had the space at Augusta and Royal Melbourne to, he could drive it to the wrong part of the hole, but he was good enough to get onto the green from the wrong part and he had the magic short game. So that course was built for him. So it was no surprise that he played great golf there for so long. It didn't really suit Feldo. Feldo was an arrow straight hitter who had three top tens, three top tens there and they're all wins. That was yeah. kind of yeah. kind of a bizarre kind of uh, f- phenomenon about his wins. Didn't really suit Langer. Um, Langer was much more suited to the US Open, as was Feldo. And uh, ironically, neither of them won that. Yeah. Um, it was suited to Sandy probably. Sandy was a little wilder, but incredibly powerful and hit massive high massive high irons. And it and and when Sandy was Someone asked Seve once who the best player in Europe was. He kind of looked at him and said, well, of course, Sandy is, of course. If, you know, if, yeah. if Sandy plays his best, he's the best player. Right. Well, the question was, if you all play your best, who's the best player? Right. And Seve said, well, of course, it's Sandy. And then um, Woolsey was just a tremendous player. So, so, so they're all just great players. Perhaps a coincidence, they all won at Augusta. It's amazing that none of them won the US Open. Right. So, so, so on one end of the argument, you've got this phenomenon of why did they all win that? Or why didn't any of them win the other or, or the US PGA? I, I mean, I have to less point op- to like less opportunities. Less opportunities. And, you know, I, I guess long grass had a lot to do with it. I mean, those guys. And the Australians never grew up playing out of long, thick green grass, which is such a characteristic of US Open and, and you know the Open and the PGA. It kind of so, point, it points to your point about why there shouldn't be four majors or three of the four majors in America. Yeah. So perhaps the reason they they all won at Augusta was that there was no long green grass to contend with, and, yeah. and that's a uniquely American phenomenon that the American players were great at playing out of that stuff. But the Europeans perhaps weren't quite as good as that. I don't know, you know, it's one theory, but um, because it, they all played well in, in the Open in Britain too. So sure. Seve, well, was he, Seve, was he, Seve won it, uh, Lyle won it, Faldo had a great record in the Open, Woozy and, um, and Elazabal, who of course is the other guy we've forgotten, Elazabal. Right. He won the Masters twice and he came out a little later, he, he, he came out in the mid-80s and was, everyone knew about him. As soon as he arrived, people recognised this guy's going to be a great player. He was such an amazing iron player that, and he had the short game. But, you know, but he won twice at Augusta without being a great driver, but just an amazing iron player. Can we get back to that Seve quote of, of, of who's the best at their best. I mean, you competed and played with all of them as well. Uh, I mean, wh- what, who would you say? I think Seve's sort of the main draw. He, he certainly stood and kind of carried you as you said, carried the tour initially. Uh, but, but in terms of talent, sheer talent, would you agree with him and his assessment of Lyle? And then on the other end of the spectrum, who of those five or six maybe wrangled the most from you know, maybe the less natural talent wrangled the most and got the most out of what he was given? Uh, probably Langer, but that's only because yeah. the others were so good. But, yeah. but Langer was, he was, 
was incredible with the irons. I mean, people watching it, Bernard was an amazing iron player. And, and Bernard's talent was a talent for hard work, which is a pretty underrated talent. Yeah. You now he was just a meticulous planner and he would just, he just worked incredible. You know, not to say that Fel, I mean, Felder was a ball beater too. Yeah. And at some point, to, to be as good as any of those guys, well, you, 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 you've had to work incredibly hard. Seve calling Sandy the most talented. Sandy probably wouldn't agree with that. I mean, Seve was the most naturally talented player to play maybe ever. Sam Snead probably the other. But Seve could hit shots that no one else could hit. Seve could see shots that no one else could see. The shot over the, I'm not sure if you heard the podcast we did with Billy Foster, but Billy describing that shot over the wall in Switzerland was, I've seen where that plaque is. I've seen where that ball was. Tiger couldn't have played that shot in his best day. Wow. And, and Tiger's the, you know, the greatest player ever, probably. Certainly he's played better golf than anyone ever. That shot Seve hit that day in Switzerland was beyond belief or imagination. No one would have, I've often said, no one would have, no other player would have seen it. If they'd seen it, they never would have tried it. And if they'd tried it, they never could have pulled it off. No other player in golf ever. So that that one shot, and, and the shot out of the fairway bunker at the Ryder Cup in 83, kind of marked Seve as the greatest talent because that was shots that no one could hit. So, so anyone that can hit a shot that no one else in the world could hit has to be the most talented, doesn't it? Yeah. Perhaps not, but. It, yeah. it, does Seve's impact on European golf kind of mirror Tiger's impact on American golf? Well, like just bringing like that popularity, the new audience, the about, crowds, the money. Talking about talking about golf in on on the continent in Europe versus the European tour. Um, he certainly transformed golf on the continent because golf on the continent was completely dead when b- before Seve. There were good continental players. Seve's uncle was a tremendous player, finished sixth at Augusta in 1965, uh, I think, Ramon Soda. So there were good Spanish players, but golf was a moribund sport played by the elite on the continent. So Seve brought that to life. Entire massive influence on golf in America, but golf in America was well and truly alive before Tiger got there. I mean, Palmer bought golf to life in America in the, in the 50s and 60s. So, so Seve was much more akin to Palmer than Tiger, I think. Golf was, golf was thriving and went well alive when Tiger arrived. I mean, he transformed it. But, you know, there was no golf on the continent before Seve. You well, talk was, about- but, you know, there were small tournaments, small crowds, small money, no interest. Seve was a guy that brought that to life. And, and Bernard had a huge influence in Germany too. So, in fact, Bernard had probably more influence in Germany than Seve did in Spain, I, w- I would think, because the Spanish, there was more money, bigger crowds, stronger tournaments in Germany than there ever were in Spain, all because of Bernard. Interesting. What's, what's a particular shot or anecdote, story, locker room, uh, that kind of captures Seve for you personally, that you encountered either in competition or on the tour. You know, you talked about the shot in Switzerland, but or what, what was something whether where you were staring down the barrel or you were playing with Seve, locker room, whatever it is that really captures Seve for you and your interactions with him? Well, he was a good guy. I mean, yeah. everyone adored Seve. But 
I watched him play a lot. For me, it was, I mean, he was the most charismatic person I've ever seen. Um, he, he lit up a room. He was incredible looking. He was interesting to watch. Whatever he did, he was interesting to watch. But it was, in my memory of him more is just the shots he hit. You know, there's a, probably the best course in Madrid, a place called Porto de Hero. Played the Madrid Open there. Greg Turner and I finished early on Sunday and went and watched him play the back nine. And he was playing with Howard Clark, who was one of the best ball strikers in Europe. And the, the 11th hole is a difficult par three with a big bank on the right of the green. So you could fudge it out to the right and kick it off the bank and it would trickle down onto the edge of the green. And he would, I mean, it was a two-iron shot, a three-iron shot. It was a long hole. And he would two-putt it from 40 feet and make three and be happy. And Clarky was playing with Sevi in the last group and Clarky hit the kind of, it was a decent shot. It was, out, you know, it, was, it was what everyone else did, out to the right and banked it back onto the edge of the green. It was a long, narrow green with a tiny tear at the back, tiny tear. Zevi just stood there with a two on and flew it back onto the tier and stopped it. It's like Greg and I looked at each other and said, I didn't do that. You know? So he was so under the pressure of the competition, he would try stuff that he didn't have to try, but he was putting on a show. He, he, every time he went out there, he, he left everyone who watched with a memory of an incredible shot. So my memory of Sevi was that. Everyone who watched that guy play golf, every single day he went out there, even when he couldn't play anymore, there would always be one shot that would leave the crowd like, what was that? Yeah. So, you know, my memory of him was so many shots like that that were incredible. What was the dynamic with him and Norman like when they were both on the European tour? I think they got on pretty well. You know, much different culture. They came from much different cultures. I mean, you know, golf was a thriving sport in Australia and Greg was pretty loud and brash and Seve wasn't loud and brash. Seve was just charismatic and did his own thing. He didn't need to be loud and brash. But um, so I've, now I've forgotten the question. Uh, just, just the dynamic. Uh, uh, the dynamic. I think they got on pretty well. I know Seve helped Greg a lot with the short game. And Greg turned into a, a, a tremendous bunker player, a really underrated part of his game. And Sevi helped him a lot with that. So they got on really well. I remember playing with them in the Australian Masters in 1983 and it was watching them play together was, that was a pretty awesome thing. It'd be like watching Nicholas and Weisskopf or, you know, two, two guys who just played golf beyond the realm of normal players. They were, they were, it was incredible to watch them play together. Yeah. They talk about it. Ollie's short game as well. I mean, there's a recent anecdote in the Michael Bamberger book just out on Tiger about how Tiger went up to Ollie last year at the Masters and asked him for advice on, or, you know, maybe patronizing. I don't know. But, but really, truly in awe of Ollie's short game. Is there something specific to Spanish players between Seve? Well, Sergio's Ollie, got a great short game too. That's like an there, underrated part of Sergio's game. Is there an explanation behind that, you think? Or just well, coincidence? Yeah, there, there probably is. Uh, the guy called Manuel Panera, a little guy who beat Watkins in the first match in the Ryder Cup in 85, the first singles match. Manuel was a tremendous player, won the World Cup with Seve. He was a genius wedge player. He and Jose Maria Canizares, they all grew up in the caddy yard. So I guess when they were little kids waiting for their boss to turn up, they'd be in the caddy yard chipping wedges off the, 
off the dirt. And so that was a big part of probably you know, was chipping around the caddy yards and, and um, that Latin flair for the game, same as the great South American players. They all had a great feel and flair for the game, probably because they couldn't read English, so they weren't stuck on reading Golf Digest, you know, the <laughs> all the latest tips on how to improve your game. <laughs> so they played with so much flair and imagination, but it's a very Latin way to play the game. What's the way Eduardo Romero and Cabrera and Roberto Di Vicenza and those guys played? It's, um, you know, not, not a whole lot different to the way the great Spanish players played. But I, I suspect growing up in the caddy yards as kids, I mean, Pinero and Canizares were both caddies at Club de Campo in Madrid. So, you know, that's not the way the average American country club kid grew up playing golf. They were playing on perfect ranges with perfect tightness with, well, not 60-degree not, not wedges, but Sevi learned it with one club, huh. you know, which, which, which shows off the the silliness in 12-year-old kids having lob wedges in their game. I mean, <laughs> if ever you wanted to teach a kid how to be a great short game player, the first thing you do is break the lob wedge and throw it in the bin <laughs> until they're 18 or 19. Uh, I, I, something in Michael Bamber's book, who ironically, he was he was a caddy for a summer uh, for the guy you beat in, in the one uh, tour win, uh, Peter Treverian. Yeah, the, to the Lakesland. He talked a lot about traveling from stop to stop. What was what was that experience like, uh, you know, where you're having to go essentially from different parts of Europe across a few countries to other parts and and and. You know, it just sounded like that was such a part of the culture. Well, it was a little bit. We we all had cars in England, which we we all stayed in England. Well, the Australians did. So there was a New York Jew called Randy Fox, Jewish guy, kind of short, fat, angry, but incredibly organised <laughs> and disorganised at the same time. So for the vast bulk of players on the tour, certainly the English, the Australians and the South Africans who based themselves in, in Europe, in, in, in England. We would meet at Heathrow on Monday or Tuesday morning, depending on when you're flying out. Randy would herd us all around, get us on the plane, get us there. We'd land in Paris or Madrid or Stockholm or wherever, Berlin, get on a bus, go to the golf course, play a practice round, go to the hotel, and reverse the procedure on Sunday night or, fr- or, or Saturday morning if you missed the cut and go back to England and then go back out the next week. So we're always going back and forth from Heathrow. So we weren't travelling from week to week. So there was one, even I thought this was crazy, there were two tournaments in a row in, in Madrid one year. So you would think it would be, and we were staying in the same hotel, the, the holiday in, in Madrid, you would think it would be logical to go out there for two weeks and stay. Every single English player except Chris Moody, who was a great friend of mine who stayed because he had a Spanish girlfriend, every single English player left on Sunday night, flew back to London and flew back out to Madrid and checked back into the holiday on, on Tuesday. So that was that seemed like, what are you guys doing? We're going home. So you, you went back and forward to London from, from the Continental Tournaments. And then when we played in England, we just drove around. Yeah. But it wasn't like we were going from one European city to the next. 
It just you wasn't how it happened. I mean, now you could you would do it easy. You would have a car and Google Maps would just take a car and drive the tour. Right. You talked a bit about how everyone sort of adored Seve. Uh, it seems like the five got along pretty well, just whether that was a Ryder Cup dynamic or not, or I, I'm not sure. I mean, we, we've done a lot of research on Woozy and, and Lyle so far, getting to the others later. And they grew up kind of in sort of in the same village. Woozy, of course, was a farmer, son of a farmer, and uh, Lyle was a, the son of a pro. Different backgrounds. But it seems like everyone got along well. Is that your understanding? Was there any kind of tension? Was there any kind of famous moments of no, contention? There's always, there's always. <laughs> players. Um, now, who reported who? Faldo reported Sandy in Kenya yes. here with the tape on the putter. Putter. Yeah. So there was tension there. Langer and Seve always clashed because Langer always thought Seve was kind of gaming him and. You know, he, he couldn't beat him. And so, so there was tension there. Um, was he never got on with Faldo, really, I don't think. Um, There's one quote in there where they talk about, their, you know, Nick goes and drinks his lemonade and works out. You know, Woozy yeah. said that. You know, Woozy, obviously, a little different approach. but Yeah. So Woozy and Faldo never got on. Because they were much different people. Woozy was a drinker and a fighter. Yeah. And Faldo wasn't a drinker and you know, did his own thing. And um, Sevi and Langer were like that a little bit. Uh, Curtis, Curtis Strange talked about how how he he just couldn't stand. In an interview, he talked about how he could not stand playing with or against uh, Sevi. He was like talking about how he's always trying to game him. What was the game? What was the gamesmanship? Was it... You know, he seemed to insinuate that he was doing a lot of stuff on purpose to get in Curtis's kitchen. Well, the, there was that great story Billy Foster told it about the uh, the first hole in the eighty in the eighty seven Ryder Cup. So it's Ollie's first Ryder Cup match. So it's Ollie and Seve playing. Kite and strange, and Billy tells this. He told this story beautifully, but said Ollie's really nervous, and Sherry says, "Don't you worry, Ollie. You just play your game. I'll look after these guys." So they all hit it onto. They all kind of knock it onto thirty-five feet. Sevy goes last, goes at the flag, and pulls it left. And he tells Ollie to putt first. So Ollie puts first. And he puts it up like four feet away, and it's Sevy's shot. And he tells Ollie to putt out. And then Curtis has a fit at telling Ollie to putt out, you know, because he's going to be standing on their through line. And Ollie's on the, Ollie's on the first green. He's really nervous. He's got this four-footer. He's got Kite and Strange up his nose. Seve, buddy, what's going on? So Seve gets on the green. Huh, whoa, you know, what's going on here? But Curtis, Curtis, you know, he's going to be standing on a through line. Huh, well, if that, you know, if that's the way you're going to play it. So Seve pulls his sandwich out. Goes, goes to the shot of the rough and chips it in. And then he runs down the green and gets in Curtis's face. That's how you want to play this game. That's how we play this game. Yeah, so on the very first green, and, you know, of course, Ollie gets to pick his ball because Seve's already made three. So, but for Seve, it was a war. You know, I mean, the, the Ryder Cup was a war for him. So, of course, Curtis would have mainly played with Seve in the Ryder Cup. So, you know, that was Seve at his most manic and most crazy and most passionate. And it was a war for him. 
So he, he was in their faces, but that, that was what allowed them to win. Yeah. They weren't going to win any other way. I mean, Neil Coles and Jack and Oosthuis were never going to beat the Americans because they were never going to get in Jack Nicholas's face yeah. or, or Weisskopf's face or Miller's face. So, you know, Seve was the guy who, he, he, turned, he turned that whole thing around. And, and part of that was, you know, I've never thought about it that much until now, but part of that was almost necessary. I mean, let's get in these guys' faces and show them who's the boss here. So, and, and Seve was, I mean, he was brutal. He was tough. He was tough. But he, Seve was smart. He was a really smart player. Remember when Sandy was, when Seve hadn't played very well in, in the 85 Open at Royal St. George's. We were sitting in the players' lounge after he'd finished watching the TV. And he came and sat down and he was watching the back nine and he was just commentating. He was just sitting there commentating. It was brilliant. You know, I mean, if you could have stuck a microphone under his nose, it was, it was the best <laughs> TV commentary ever. Because he was, he was explaining what was, you know, because most of us had never been in that position of last day, last group, trying try to win the British Open. So he had, so, so he knew what was going through the players' heads. And someone three-putted on the seventh or eighth hole, ninth hole maybe, I don't know who it was. Sevy just looked and said, that's his chance gone. I, I, can't, I can't even remember who it was. It might have been David Graham. But he said, that's his chance gone. And he knew exactly, and he, and he picked the moments that were really important. So Sevy was a smart player who really knew the critical moments to make the critical shot. You talked a little bit about um, Seve deciding or, or transitioning to play a little bit more in America. Of course, he was always a Euro Tour loyalist to the Euro Tour. But what was the calculation for some of them to to, to and sit Lyle? Of course, started playing more in America, Florida, places like that. What was the cal? Woozy did not like it at all. Uh, what was the calculation for those for those players or even the rank and file members of, of trying to make it or? or being contented staying in the European European tour. Well, for, for those guys, it was unless they came to Australia or South Africa, it was the only place to play in January and February. Okay. So, so the European tour didn't start up until well in March. So the European tour didn't start up until it would start in Spain in April. Yeah. So for for the, you know, and there was no play in November December. So for for five months a year there was no golf. So some of them went to South Africa. Some of them came down to Australia. And the guys who were really good, who, who could get invitations to play in America, went to play in, play in the States. So Seve went there early on and he won in Greensboro in 77 or 78, which got him exempt on the tour. Felt right. I was playing on invitations probably. Sandy too a little bit. So it was just a place for him to play really. And if they couldn't play there, as I said, they came to Australia to play. They they started playing in Dubai in the late 80s, which was the first foray of the European tour outside of the continent of Europe, really. And then the South African tournaments came on, the Australian tournaments, the, the Asian tournaments, to the point now where more than half of the European tour is, outside of the, is played outside of Europe now. Right. But they, those, guys needed, those guys needed somewhere to play. So we, we came across a story of Sandy Lyle, uh, you know, getting done early and hanging out, having a few glasses of wine with his uh, caddy. And then, you know, Savvy kind of self-destructing down the stretch and ending up in a playoff. Do you have any uh, good stories of, of 
you know, some of the shenanigans or, or nightlife's getting in the in the way of some players in that era? The best the best nightlife story of that, and this is completely unrelated to the European tour, was a guy called Alan Pate from Mobile, Alabama. He <laughs> was a decent player. And we were playing the Thailand Open in, I don't remember when it was, in the, in the, it was 1983 probably, and the Japanese players took him out for dinner. They plied him with sake. So Alan was... I think he was in the second last group. He was playing really well in the tournament. <laughs> and they I can still see it. They brought him back into the hotel. He was so drunk. I've never seen a guy so drunk. They kind of draped him around one of those um, luggage trolley racks and his arms <laughs> and they kind of wheeled him up into his room. <laughs> and he woke up at four o'clock the next afternoon when the, the whole tournament was over. He completely missed the whole last round. <laughs> So, uh, <laughs> that's the worst I've ever heard. But, um, <laughs> we told we were told by uh, I think a caddy somebody that that Woozy was picked up off the steps of a nearby club near Port Marnock and won the Irish Open Sunday after being shaken awake off off the steps of a nearby club. I don't know if the reliability of that one, but just there are a lot yeah. of those stories with Woozy. It seems like. I, I, the real, the really great drinking stories of the European tour were before I got there. The, Newton and there were legendary stories of Newton and Shearer and those guys clo- you know, closing the bar at eleven o'clock. What? What? No, what? The famous, the famous, famous drinking story. I've forgotten this one. Was of Simon Hobday in Switzerland. So the clubhouse at Kronz's year turned into a nightclub at eight o'clock after the, most of the golfers had gone. And Simon's sitting at the bar. And got to the point where the barman finally said, Mr. Hobday, can you please put some clothing on? So he put his <laughs> underpants back on his head. <laughs> so that was a famous drinking story. And it was Hobday completely naked sitting in the bar in the clubhouse in Switzerland. Uh, um, yeah, the 80s were, were the great alcoholic times of the European tour. But remember Sevi. Sevi being in a hotel bar in in Europe somewhere, and Woozy was sitting at the sitting at the bar drinking. We were kind of sitting at the lounge, and he walked past and looked at Woozy and said, he kind of shook his hands, shook his finger, and looked at us and said, "Drinking is no good. He's no good for your game." So Sevi didn't drink at all, really. Yeah. And and Bernard didn't drink. Nick didn't drink. I don't remember Sandy drinking. Ollie didn't drink. Sevi didn't drink. So Woozy was the only one of those guys who was a drinker, really. Yeah. But Sam was a drinker. Torrance could drink. You know, he, he, he slapped down a pint any time of the day or night. Ferry didn't mind a, a, a pint. But the best – Greg wasn't a drinker. Yeah. So you know, there, there was a big conflict between Greg and Jack Newton. Greg wrote a book very early on and criticised Jack for the amount of drinking he did and, it kind of fractured their relationship for the longest time, but um, the best players over there weren't drinkers in the in the eighties. You you were out there when VJ was playing on the European tour. What what, what was he like as in, in that in those years versus what we remember him as? You know, American PGA Tour player. 
He was quiet. He stuck to himself. He had, he had a caddy called Morgie, a little guy, a little old English guy. It was not one of the best caddies out there, I don't think. <laughs> <laughs> and someone asked, Vito, why have you got this guy caddying for you? <laughs> and he said, he's the only guy that will sit on the range until the sun goes down every day. <laughs> And I know that he's not complaining or not wanting to be anywhere else. So every other, every, every other one of these caddies, when it gets to 9 o'clock at night and the sun's going down, I'm still beating balls, I know that every other single caddy out there is going to be bitching and not wanting to be there. So Morgie just sat there without complaint for, for, the, for every day VJ shut the range. So VJ was quiet. He did his own thing. He was always swinging that massive heavy driver in the car park when he was waiting for the cosy cars. And he played great golf. But, I mean, he had – he bloated his copybook in Asia where he cheated up there or yeah. allegedly cheated. Um, so he came to Europe and there were a lot of guys who, who played that tournament in Indonesia who it took him a long time for him to, to, to forgive him for it. And the worst part was he kept denying it. Yeah. And it was like, VJ, come on, we were there. We know what happened. You know, admit it and just move on. We don't care, really. Shades of a shades of a current situation with a current player, huh? Yeah, very much. And you know, if, if VJ had admitted what he'd done, everyone would. It was a it was a twenty year old kid with no money in Indonesia, and he changed his scorecard allegedly. So you know, if he'd said, "Yeah, I was young and dumb, and I was broken," you know, it won't ever happen again. Everyone would have said, "Fair play, VJ. No problem. Let's just move on." But he kind of kept deflecting and denying it. And, but I like VJ. He, he was a good guy and he was a hard worker and he, was a, he turned himself into a great player. I remember I played with him in a, on, the, on the Asian Tour really early on. He was, I liked him and, and he, was, he wasn't very good, but he, he just worked his ass off and, and became a, you know, a great player, really, VJ. So, 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 so you have to admire him for what he did and what he achieved. And he was, he was just... He turned up in Europe. When John Huggins tells the story, he was he was he wrote the story about VJ put, making ends meet by working as a bouncer at a nightclub in Edinburgh. Yeah. So he'd work as a bouncer at a nightclub in Edinburgh and go and practice at Dunbar where Huggy was a member. So he was. I mean, no one thought VJ was very good because he wasn't very good in Asia. Right. And then he disappeared for two or three years. Came back and played in Australia in the late 80s, turned up in Europe in the very early 90s. And, yeah, I mean, he only played there for, what, three or four years, perhaps? Yeah, that sounds right. Yeah, and then went bounce. to America. I mean, he was a gun. I mean, he's still a tremendous player. So, before uh, Mark DeVee, Jack. But he was, you know, when you, you've got to look at players like Seve and VJ from where they'd come from. They didn't grow up in, in privileged Australia or privileged United States where... Golf was a, you know, a wealthy game played played mainly by men of reasonable means. VJ's dad was an aircraft worker in Nandi Airport in Fiji. No money, no opportunity. How the hell do you get out of Fiji and be one of the best players in the world? You've got to be hard and tough. And Seve was a, you know, I think Seve's family had more money than, you know, is than. They ever really let on, but you know, he, was, he was a caddy and you know, it, was, it was a tough, hard background. How the hell do you get out of Padrania? There's little 
rainy village in the top of Spain to become the best player in the world. You've got to be hard and tough and, you know, you know normal people don't get out of that circumstance to, to, to become the best player in the world. You've got to have something incredibly unusual to fight your way from that to where yeah. they got you. You've been uh, really gracious gracious with your time, so uh, we'll get you out of here. Just one kind of present-day question. I mean, there's obviously a lot in flux right now, and, and you've spoken kind of eloquently on the value and history of the European Tour today, but but it seems like the current situation has in a, the Euro Tour in a bit of a precarious spot. It will either, you know be greatly diminished or significantly changed coming out of this i mean what do you feel like is lost if 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 we do not have the euro tour as it i mean i don't know that we'll ever go back to those <clears throat> heydays that you, when you were out there with the, the five that we've talked about extensively yeah. today but what do you think's lost I, I think it's important to keep the game global in a way it is i mean i think we're all guessing about what the world game is going to look like after this whether you whether Asia, Australia, the Middle East, Europe, New Zealand, South Africa combine it, well, they almost have anyway, combine into one conglomerate world tour that, that forms the one big tour outside of the United States. Japan are never going to be a part of that. They're always going to do their own thing. But the, the European tour, there's lots of, you know, lots of the European tour in, in Asia in the Middle East and South Africa. So it depends how those countries come out of this, how Australia comes out of it. I mean, I mean the European tour could take over the Australian tour. It wouldn't be the worst thing to take over the New Zealand Open, the Australian Open. The, yeah. uh, well, the, the Australian PGA is already co-sanctioned. The Vic Open is co-sanctioned. If, you know, if the European tour could cobble together 15 or 20 great tournaments in Europe and then use up the rest of the world to make up the other, tw- other 20 tournaments, and have a great 40 tournament tour, perhaps with, perhaps with reduced prize money, but you know, that its strength might be the, the bringing together of the parts that aren't quite together now. So yep. that, that's a guess at what might happen. Yep. But the, the tour grew because it was supported by those six great players. Yeah. So, you know, it's probably not going to happen again because Rory and Poulter and the, Ram and Rose and Sergio, the best European players of this era are going to stay in the United States and play. The, the trick will be if they can get the, capture the next lot of great European players, the kids who are out there are, who, are born, who are 15 years old now, if they can get that generation of players to play a new world order tour that's not part of the US tour. So to do that, they're going to have to keep the money up at a reasonable level and create great tournaments. So, I mean, as, as a golf architecture nut, yep. part of that, I think, is to create a tour that goes to the very best courses they can. So don't just go to the place that puts up a million bucks to play down the road, but create, create a tour that's built around playing great golf courses. So rather than, I mean, play the Irish Open back at Port Marnock and go back to Sunningdale and the great English courses and play the best course in Germany rather than the course that puts the money up. And so if, if, if somehow you can build a tour around great golf course architecture, that will be an, that, that'll be in a small way. Some go somewhere to attracting the best players to come back and play that tour, I think. I, I agree with that. 
I think it, 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 it enhances the product of, of so much. And that's where I think you look at the PGA Tour. The PGA Tour isn't as focused on their product as they are their partners and their players. You know, they want to make sure their partners and players are, are happy and then the product comes third. And if you create a tour that's centered around the product, you have a, a good chance of winning. That's right. Well, look how much interest there was in the President's Cup last year at Royal Melbourne. I mean, it was exactly. because of, and partly it was because it was the President's Cup. Partly it was because of playing. But a huge part of the success of the tournament was how great the golf course was. So, so people all around the world tuned in to watch that tournament because they were seeing Tiger, play, Tiger in large part, play at Royal Melbourne. I, mean, I watched that last match inside the ropes because the first two days, without a pass inside the ropes, the first two days, you couldn't see anything. But inside the ropes the last day, you could truly watch a genius play a great golf course. And, and it, made, it makes pro golf so much better when you're playing courses like that. So I, I think that should be a big focus of the, let's call it the new, the, the, the new world tour outside of the United States. It, it, should, be, it should focus on going to, going to great golf courses. The best possible golf course you can go to every week because it, sure, it surely massively makes watching golf on TV so much more interesting. We, we've had a long outstanding uh, uh, episode that we haven't done on the on a potential PGL schedule. We might have to have you back on for it. I've got a, I've got a framework and we, got, we could put it together. A dream to a schedule. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. The dream golf course architecture, architecture nerd schedule. <laughs> might might have to might have to do that might have to do that in the next couple of weeks where we uh, let's do that yeah for sure thanks so much for the time and, and, and we'll have to have you on again it was that was a lot of fun thanks Danny thanks, thanks Brandon it was good thank you Mark so much appreciate it pleasure thanks mate.